0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I think we'll take a few moments to read our scriptures together. And we are uh, still in 2 Chronicles. Saw the uh, bringing back of the proper king into the kingdom in Israel back in chapter 23. And the usurper Athaliah, the grandmother of the king, who had taken the throne illegally, was uh, removed. We now come to chapter 24, and uh, we'll see a story of mixed uh, blessing and uh, sin here. Let us see what we find in Second Chronicles chapter 24. Joash was seven years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. Then he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year. And see that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the king called Jehoiada the chief priest and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord. To the bales. Then the king, and then at the king's command, they made a chest and set it outside at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem, to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses the servant of God had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. We have to go back to the law to find out about that collection. Verse 10. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced, brought their contributions, and put them into the chest until all had given. So it was at that time when the chest was brought to the king's official by the hand of the Levites and when they saw that there was much money that the king's scribe and the high priest's officer came and emptied the chest and took it and returned it to its place. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. The king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord And they hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. So the workmen labored and the work was completed by them. They restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king in Jehoiada. They made from it articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering spoons and vessels of gold and silver, And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent, that is God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not listen." Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who stood above the people, and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him. And at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada, his father, had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. This is a very sad turnabout of events, isn't it? Too much. Zechariah, one of the ones, I think the Lord mentions him, didn't he, that uh, he was killed in the court of the house of the Lord. from. Yeah, I think so. Verse 23, So it happened in the spring of the year that the army of Syria came up against him, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but the Lord delivered a very great army into their hand. Because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers, so they executed judgment against Joash." And when they had withdrawn from him, for they left him severely wounded, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed, so he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. These are the ones who conspired against him, Zabad the son of Shimeath the Ammonitess and Jehazabad the son of Shimrith the Moabitess. Now concerning his sons and the many oracles about him and the repairing of the house of God, Indeed, they are written in the annals of the book of the kings. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So we could probably figure out a little bit more about the chronology here, but he started at seven years old and he reigned 40 years. So he was uh, extinguished at 47, roughly 48, perhaps, depending on exactly how the number of years went. Um, And it looks like we could say the first half or section of his life was given to obedience as he was led by Jehoiada, the priest. But then after that, he went his own way. And uh, I wonder some if he maybe uh, didn't really have in his heart the things of God. And so when the the strong influence of Jehoiada, the old man, uh, who was probably um, near to 100 years old, if not more by the time that Uh, Joash came to power if uh, once that influence was gone that uh, he went his own heart's way kind of like a young person who might profess to believe the way the parents do but then leave uh, leave the faith when they grow up and older and uh, make a real mess of things but in any case that's what happened with uh, Joash good at the beginning and failure toward the end so all right well God bless that reading and may we take uh, caution from it indeed all right we have uh, before us a little material here Uh, I I elected to go with this instead of with the uh, overflow material from this morning in Genesis even though both could be uh, useful but I wanted to finish this uh, study at least for now Uh, with us. And this is the study that we started a number of weeks ago on divine judgment. Um, And uh, this has now gotten to be quite a lengthy document. You can get it on the church website. I put the latest edition there uh, for you, but I didn't print out the whole thing for everybody tonight. Um, Let me just touch on a couple of thoughts and then uh, try to finish the rationale uh, section. So what we've done is we've kind of looked at the basics of God's doctrine of eternal punishment, We've looked at some objections to it. We've looked at some alternate doctrines. Uh, We've cautioned against overreaction and so on. And uh, all that's in the document. We talked a little bit uh, a couple of times in our last three sessions on this about the doctrine of annihilation. And I just uh, realized I should add a little bit of comment to that because it is kind of today a very popular position. People are just saying, well, you just die and that's it. You're, You're done. So, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow we die. And in their mind, we die means there's nothing. There's no accountability or anything like that. So another serious problem, in addition to the ones that we went over already for this doctrine of annihilation, is simply that Jesus told us that he is going to raise all of the dead people. Okay? If a person is annihilated... May I ask you, how is he going to raise them up from the dead? John 5:28 and 29 say, says this: "Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So they will come out of the graves, good and bad, and be resurrected." Now this is actually not a new doctrine. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 talks about the same thing. Acts chapter 24 and verse 15 uh, records that Paul says he holds a hope in God, which these men also themselves accept, that is um, the Pharisees, uh, the Sanhedrin in the the Jewish uh, nation, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust, so it's fixed in our minds. When we talk about the resurrection, it's not just for believers. It's for unbelievers too. And then the judgment. The Apostle John writes of the coming resurrection of Christ's people to reign with him. And that's in Revelation 20 and verse 4. And then in verse number 5, he says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished or ended. So... Three passages, plus the Daniel one that I mentioned, at least tell us that God is going to raise all before him. They will all stand before the judgment seat of either the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ and receive either rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, evaluation, you know, it's important, and also if they are at the great white throne judgment, they will receive that which is in accordance with their works. So the doctrine of annihilation conflicts with this plain teaching of bodily resurrection taught in the scripture. Annihilation is a belief that comes from the community of non-Christians. It's not a doctrine that we should be toying with, even though it does resolve some of the difficulties that we might feel about the doctrine of divine judgment. So it has no place in the Christian community, although there are a number of Christians who have said that we should not believe, uh, or we should believe in the doctrine of annihilation. I'm just going back to the, to the detailed notes in the back of my document and trying to find one of them. Um, I can't quite find it right now, but you can look at that uh, another time. Um, uh, let's see. Some, sometimes, too, the, uh, the the length of punishment, um, the matter of that is very troublesome uh, to people. Uh, we talked a little bit about this when we said, well, you know, a crime might take five minutes to carry out, but is the punishment five minutes? Doesn't seem to be very just, does it, if the punishment is only as long as the length of the crime. We obviously understand that. If somebody commits a five-minute crime, a very serious felony then they might go to jail for 20 years or life in prison. And we would think that's somewhat more just. Uh, And so some have said, well, punishment forever is too long. It seems to me then, if that's the case, maybe from an argument of greater to lesser, we could say a, a thousand years of punishment seems too long. Yet, if you recall carefully from the book of Revelation in chapter 19, uh, it says there that something happens to a, a, a human beings who are labeled the beast and the false prophet in a connection with the uh, uh, work of the Antichrist. In a Revelation 19.20, um, it says, then the beast was captured, When this is when the Lord Jesus returns, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That's before the reign of Christ on the earth. And then in Revelation 20, verse number 10, it says, after the 1,000 years were finished, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, they are still there a thousand years later. So, uh, a thousand years is a long time, but they are indeed still there, and the scripture makes clear that uh, that teaching. Okay, now let me move on uh, into the area of the rationale for uh, the sorry for the eternal punishment of those who rebel against God. Um, And I'm continuing here with a very helpful uh, treatment that I read. It was actually, like some of these older theologians, they write so much and it's just a massive treatise on this doctrine written by William G. T. Shedd and I have his, uh, it's a huge volume, literally that thick. Uh, I can't remember how many pages now, but near to a thousand if not more. And he has a lengthy section on this. He gives some thoughts, some reasons, some rationale that I included in my notes. And um, he says this. This is number seven on the list. It's on page 13 if you're following along in the notes. The human conscience, he says, knows that punishment is right. Self-love and a desire for happiness are the shields that people use to block the conscience from its proper operation. People's dread of hell is proof that people understand the unending nature of the punishment for sin. The fact that people still labor to try to disprove its existence is proof of its existence. That's an interesting thought that he offers there. You might think, well, that's kind of weird. But think of it again. So, first of all, we don't like to think of ourselves, or of anybody else for that matter, as being... um, suffering or punished for what we have done is wrong especially you know there are a lot of criminals especially when they first go into the uh penal system into the jail they feel that they shouldn't be there they did what they wanted to do they did what was just they did what was right they did you know they shouldn't be there they shouldn't have been caught and so on so they're they're they use that feeling to mask their conscience but he says that the dread of this eternal punishment is actually proof that they understand it, and the, the labors that people kind of do in order to disprove it are actually proofs of its existence. And here's an, exil- an illustration that he uses. No one works so hard to disprove the existence of a unicorn. We just know it doesn't exist and we just laugh about it and we like little paintings of unicorns and they're fun and uh, but nobody really works to disprove the existence of the unicorn. Of course I'm not talking about a rhinoceros now. I'm talking about a the mythical, you know, horse creature. Now if somebody can show me one, I'd be certainly happy to see it. That'd be cool. But uh no one works hard to prove the non existence of a unicorn, well and and that's of much of course much less moment than the uh, the existence of hell, but people are still working at it, working very hard, but the Word of God stands and it still is teaching the same thing it did 2,000 years ago. Now, number eight, he, in, in uh, kind of the summation of his topics here, the, he says, the will of the sinner is in bondage to sin and continues down that path. And in fact, the will of the sinner is increased in anger against God when uh, he receives his due reward. This is another rationale for endless punishment, that sin in the sinner doesn't decrease, it actually increases. And then uh, this one, this is interesting. At least some of the wicked prefer hell to heaven. They do not want to be where God is, where pure goodness is. Heaven to them would be hell. Now that seems strange for us to think, but have you... Maybe you've heard this. I've seen this before, uh, especially if you, you can see some videos and uh, people trying to witness and, uh, or, or mockers, atheists, talking about how they'd rather go to hell. They don't want to go where that monster God is because he's awful, they say. Blasphemous. Why is that? Well, because men love darkness rather than light. At least for them, they think, in eternal punishment in hell, the sinful demon or the sinful soul can remain in its chosen state of pride and rebellion against God and doesn't have to submit to the law of God. That's a backwards way of thinking, but some do hold it to that. Perhaps the strongest support, now listen, the strongest support for the doctrine of eternal punishment is simply the words of Jesus. Jesus speaks as much and some people say more about eternal punishment than he does about heaven. We have no problem believing heaven, do we? But uh, what about eternal punishment? Now note that just because these are said in red letters in your Bible doesn't make them more important. We've labored over the years to say that. Red letters and black letters in your Bible are the same inspiration all the way along. But Christ spoke very plainly of the doctrine of eternal judgment, and because of his perfect character, we know he did not stretch the truth. You know, he wasn't just stretching the truth to say, well, okay, if I kind of advertise hell as worse than it is, then I'll get more people into heaven. He's not manipulating like that. He simply tells the truth so that they will know the stakes that are involved. Neither did he give a false hope by weakening the teaching on this doctrine like people do today. Well, you go there and you can get out, or you go to purgatory and you pay for some of your sins and then you're acceptable into heaven, or or you just are annihilated, and uh, that makes people feel better. He gives no clear statement that would allow us to water down the teaching of eternal punishment. He and the apostles are clear and certain. They do not waffle on this matter. Jesus spoke of these things in perfect righteousness, in love, in compassion, for all people. He was burdened for people's souls. He told some of his Jewish brothers and sisters, if you do not repent, you will likewise perish. Paul talked about eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Hell is not the creation of the church or some overzealous religious nuts bent on controlling the populace like, oh, we're going to we're gonna scare them into following us and giving us money. That's farthest from the truth. Christ taught it because it is the real destination of those who reject God. If we reject Jesus on this issue, it seems, we would reject everything else that he says, things we know to be true and reasonable and just and good. We know that he's speaking the truth. Furthermore, Jesus spoke of these matters as one with first-hand knowledge setting aside for the moment that he, with the Father, created the situation of eternal life and eternal punishment. He did that. We should keep in mind that Jesus was from above. He was from the other world and is an eyewitness to the things that go on there. In his divine consciousness as the Logos, he knows from firsthand experience that no human being can know. He has seen the devil. He knows Hades. After he died it seems he went to the underworld and proclaimed his victory over sin. 1 Peter 3:19 says that. So when you think about it, think Jesus taught about eternal punishment and Jesus actually could I say it this way, went there? He knows about it. He's God. He has firsthand information about this. He says he came from above. He did come from above. He preexisted John the Baptist and all other human beings for that matter. Another reason to accept the doctrine of eternal punishment is this. Without eternal punishment, the impetus for Christ's ministry is gutted. And it means there's no real reason for him to come and suffer such an awful penalty for sin and sinners. Remember we said there is a worse suffering than hell. It's the suffering that Jesus suffered on the cross. Infinitely many sinners and their sins and the demerit of that all in the time that he suffered. Why would Jesus die if there is no ultimate penalty for sin? Just let people go their way. Restore them later, or annihilate them if you want, or whatever. Why go so far out of his way to rescue the lost if that rescue operation is not really necessary? It would just seem to be like, I don't know, the actions of of a rescue on a movie set. No rescue is really needed. They're just trying to make it look like one's needed. As Randy Alcorn writes, by denying hell's reality, we lower the stakes of redemption and minimize Christ's work on the cross. Again, I hope you understand. If there's no eternal punishment, there's no reason for Christ to come and die for our sins. There's no extreme urgency or extremity of situation that would cause him to have to come. So that's one of the reasons why we believe in eternal punishment. Another support for the doctrine of eternal punishment is that on the face of, in the face of clear biblical teaching for it, the natural temptation is to water it down and make it easier to accept, sometimes by eliminating the teaching altogether, like, for example, in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 10. Actually, we're going to get into this in Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the exposition of that because there... Satan takes the words of God, and he says exactly the opposite of them. God said, if the, if you, in the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. Satan said, you will not surely die. He takes the exact opposite, just inverts God's word, and tries to get people to believe the very opposite of that word. Isaiah 30, verse 10. Let's see what I have here. Who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Okay, This is what a rebellious people does. I don't want to hear the truth. I want to hear smooth talk, ear-tickling things, not hard things. We expect humans to downplay the danger of the doctrine of hell. This... Is a strange notion, however, since people do also have a tendency to magnify the other things, other dangers in life, so as to entertain their fearful side. So we downplay the doctrine of hell, but we upplay the doctrine of COVID. We downplay the doctrine of hell, but we upplay the dangers of, of environmentalism, of uh, climate change. We make those like the real bad things, and we take the doctrine of hell down and try to make it ignorable. The scriptures are equally clear on teaching the eternal existence of God, the eternal happiness of the saved, and the eternal punishment of the righteous. Logically, these three things fall or stand together. If the scripture is to be believed at all, the word eternal has to mean eternal in all three of those cases. Hell is a place of punishment by means of wages due. For the harm that has been done, 2 Peter 2 13, receiving the wages that are due. Judgment will be according to works, and awful criminals will receive an awful punishment. So, there's a. We talked about the um, levels of punishment in Hades and in hell, and this is related to that. So, part of the rationale. God loves the world, my friends, more than any human being can love it. If someone claims to be more loving than God, more kind than God, more just than God, wiser than God, then we automatically recognize that that person has a pride problem. Jesus loved in such a way and to such an extent that he gave himself for the salvation of the world. In effect, no human needs to suffer eternal punishment for sin because Christ died to save them if they only would believe. Did you get that? We're concerned about people suffering in in eternal condemnation, but no human needs to do that. All can believe in Christ and be saved from that if only they trust in him. Now, there are a couple of counterexamples that you could point out I recognize. Judas, for example. He is called the son of destruction or perdition, so it seems like he had to go there. He's a human who had to go there. There are very few that, are, that we know of that are in that, in that case, at least uh, certainly a priori. Um, another rationale for eternal punishment is this, without it there is no justice. People do not receive the appropriate rewards for their deeds in this life. For example, very bad people, if they just died at a ripe old age and disappeared or were annihilated, receive no consequences for their awful behavior. Uh, you think of the worst dictators, those who were responsible for the murder of thousands and millions of souls. Torture. Uh, uh, you know, Live human uh, organ harvesting. Uh, abortion. I mean, all kinds of awful things. Gassing people with, with uh, sarin gas. I mean, I can go on and on. You've, you've heard this, but you don't want to hear it because it ruins your faith in humanity. Yes indeed, we come from a broken race and there are people who deserve the worst of punishment because they have done the worst of things to other humans. And if they just died and disappeared like the annihilationist wants to say, where was justice? And this is one of the, the, the problems that atheists have because they say, we look at the world and we see there's no justice. These people get away with murder, literally and nothing happens to them. They steal you, rob you blind, nothing happens to them. You know, the masters of the universe kind of class and take all that they want and leave nothing for the poor. You say There's no justice in this world. Well, that's because they're thinking only of justice in this world. But if you're a Christian, you recognize that there is justice beyond this life, and God will straighten all of that out. And that does give us a good hope. God guarantees that justice is served in this life or certainly by the next. Or if you believe in Christ, your sins are covered by him and justice is thus served in him. Eternal punishment may simply be eternal also because the nature of the sinner continues to sin as well always adding sin upon sin, always complaining, always hating God, always rebelling against God's authority. Evil does not correct itself, and so evil continues, and that would imply an ongoing punishment for ongoing wicked rebellion. When we think of the awfulness of eternal punishment, we are thinking of the person being punished, or we put ourselves in their shoes ourselves, but you have to also think not only about the person being punished, but the victim of that person's crimes. What do they feel if the one who perpetrated great injustice upon them goes free? Your, your child is murdered by somebody. A drunk driver takes the life. Uh, you are the personal victim of some terrible crime. What do you feel if the criminal goes free and doesn't have to pay for you, your, the, the crime that they did against you? What about the person who was tortured for most of their lives in a mental hospital in China, strapped down, injected with drugs, fried their brain, and done to that repeatedly? Or the person whose organs were stolen while they were alive or beheaded for their faith or put in concentration camps like the Jews? Or What do the perpetrators of injustice get? Do they get nothing? Without eternal punishment, the criminal gets off the hook and the victim is left holding a bag of air for all eternity. There's no reason for eternal punishment except that the man has sinned and retribution is thus required. God cannot be blamed for man the creature's sin. Finally, note the rationale for eternal punishment is what is called inscrutable in the final analysis. What does that mean? That's a fancy word. It means you can't figure it out. It's too hard to to fully grasp. Listen to this, Isaiah 28, 21. Our pastor friend showed this to me. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry at the val- as in the Valley of Gibeon that he may do his work, his awesome work and bring to pass his act, his unusual or strange work. I never noticed that verse before, but this pastor shared with me his understanding that that is speaking of the wrath of God against sin and that it is an unusual or strange work it is a strange work of punishment against God's people indeed that is the case at the end of brother Shedd's dogmatic theology the very last pages of his book as it's organized in seven major doctrines and then each of those has subdivisions in that doctrine the last one of those is the doctrine of hell And at the very end of that, I was extremely pleased to see that after he taught about that whole doctrine and how awful it is, he paused for several pages before the very end of the book, and he gave the gospel. The doctrine of hell is not the end of all doctrine. It is, we could say, perhaps the biggest reason why one would want to come to Christ Because they know that not only is their guilt weighing them down now, but it will carry through with them all eternity. And they don't want that. They want to be delivered from it. And so he spoke much about the work of Christ and how it delivers us from sin and from eternal condemnation. Unless you repent, you too will likewise perish, as the Lord said. Walford writes this as a fitting conclusion, eternal punishment is an unrelenting doctrine that faces every human being as the alternative to grace and salvation in Christ. As such, it is a spur to preaching the gospel, to witnessing for Christ, to praying for the unsaved and showing compassion on those who need to be snatched as brands from the burning. Those who deny eternal punishment are being deceived like Eve was in the Garden of Eden. The serpent told her, in effect, God is wrong. You will not surely die if you eat of the forbidden tree. What he was saying is, you're not going to go to hell. You'll live. You'll know good and evil. You'll be wise. Besides, it looks good to eat this fruit. It's similar today. The Bible says there is such a thing as eternal punishment for sin. But the human sinful nature, the world, and the devil try to convince people otherwise. They use human reason and compassion and all too often leave out the word of God and God's holiness in their thoughts. Has such a devilish thought captured your thinking like it did for Eve and Adam? God says if you sin and don't repent, you will surely die. Satan says, you will not die. Who are you gonna believe? It is said that Charles Darwin turned away from God because of the teaching of everlasting punishment. The impetus for his evolutionary theory, therefore, could be that it provides an explanation for a universe without God. But coming up with a clever alternate explanation does not change the reality. The reason that theologians, in fact, I have probably uh, Pinnock, Scott, uh, Stott, and one or two others in the notes beyond this point in the bibliography—they change their belief on the matter of eternal punishment not because of Scripture. They do it because of emotions, because of feelings of revulsion, because of sense of superior moral judgment. They know a better way. It is not because of the Bible, for the Bible is clear on the matter. And in fact, I mentioned before many unbelieving scholars have said the Bible is very clear. We just don't believe the Bible. We do believe the Bible. It comes down then to a question of authority. Who is your authority? God's word or your word or another person's word? Is it possible that God is more serious about sin than we think? I think this table here proves that point. He's more serious about sin than we are. Is it possible that our sin is worse than we think? Is that possible? In fact, it is more than possible. It's a reality. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah 59.2, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There is none good. There's none who does righteous. No, not one. Grasping the reality that God is more serious about sin and our sin is more serious than we think will help you to make hell not seem so shocking. If you're doubting God because of this, what would convince you? Are you absolutely certain that there's no punishment for your sin? Or have you turned a doubt about eternal punishment into a certainty that you are correct and then as an excuse for you to set aside the truth of God that He's revealed in the Bible? I think sometimes people want to say something like this. God should do something about hell. He did. At the cross. This is the mercy that overcomes hell. This mercy is the great salvation of Christ which delivers from sin and death and hell. And God graciously, genuinely, Receives penitent sinners and rescues them from eternal punishment if they only believe. God did something about hell. And these are the reasons why I believe it's rational, it's biblical to believe in the doctrine of eternal punishment. It doesn't lessen the unpleasantness of it. But it does make clear. I mean, there are a lot of unpleasant things in life, and they're true. You know, you have cancer and you're going to need surgery, radiation, and chemo. Unpleasant. But maybe true if you want to survive for more than six months or whatever your due date is. So just because it's unpleasant doesn't make it false. This is highly unpleasant, but it's also highly true, truthful to Scripture. God has done something about hell, and I thank God that He has. Let us pray. Father, as we approach the table tonight, I'm grateful for the example that I mentioned from that systematic theology that after all was said and done, and we could really do this with every doctrine of Scripture, that they all can be moved toward the doctrine of the cross and to the gospel of Christ. That God and your mercy, the Son of God and His self sacrifice, the Spirit of God and His helping an offering of the of Christ through the eternal spirit the doctrine of man and of sin the doctrine of salvation the doctrine even of the church and last things including personal eschatology heaven and hell all point to the grand climax of history and to the great resolution of the problems of evil of suffering in the world and of your compassion to the lost. We find it in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that at the table tonight, each one of us will guard our hearts and that we will think about the things that we've heard and be strengthened in the truth, valiant for the truth, and we will thank you. God, give us insight into this matter, as difficult as it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to welcome down uh, everyone from upstairs to uh, participate with us in the Lord's Table. And uh, for those of you who are online, we're going to uh, turn the live stream off now and share the Lord's Table uh, here in the family setting of the church. And I wish you God's blessing. Amen. And good night to those of you on the live stream.